right, guys, we are getting into part two of my argument for the Trinity. So if you haven't watched part one, I would encourage you to go back to that. That explains the logic of what we're using to essentially show that the Trinity is in fact biblical and really the only reasonable explanation for the Trinity. So without further ado, let's get into part two. So, so far, what we've talked about, just as a review, if you've already listened to part one, what we've basically made is the argument that one, the Trinity can't just be false because it's beyond our comprehension. There's things about God that we'd expect as an eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent being that he's going to be beyond our comprehension. And so that the Trinity might be something that we don't quite understand, doesn't mean that it's false. Similarly, we also made the point that the Trinity itself isn't illogical. It's hard to understand, but it's not illogical. If we were saying there are three persons in one person, that would be illogical because that's a contradiction. But we're saying there's three persons in one being, and those terms being different means that it's logically possible, though we might not understand what person and being really means. That being said, the Trinity could be true. Now we're giving a case for why it is actually true. So the argument that we started into is looking at it and saying there's five things that ultimately prove that the Trinity must be true, that the Bible is very clear on being true. And that's one, that there is only one God and there are no others. Two, that the Father is God. Three, that Jesus is God Four, that the Holy Spirit is God. And finally, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not each other. If all of these things are true, then no other explanation of the Trinity works. In fact, any other view is going to reject one of those facts, and therefore we would have to say those views are unbiblical. And so we've now been presenting a case for how we believe from the Bible that those facts are actually true. We've talked about how, of course, there's only one God. We talked about how, of course, the Father is God, and that's easy to see. Both of those things are things that most people wouldn't contend looking at the Bible, although Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses might try to make the case that some of the gods that are talked about when it says gods in the Old Testament are actually gods. But when we think of just the narrative of the entire Old Testament, we understand that that doesn't really make sense because even the times other gods are mentioned, they don't do anything. It seems to be clear within the narrative of Scripture that these are called gods not because the Jews or the people writing down the Bible viewed those as actual gods, but because other people viewed them as gods. And so we use that same name just to have that identity understood. Furthermore, when we look in passages, especially within Isaiah chapters 40 to 48, for instance, there seems to be almost, as one person might say, John White, a trial of other gods to basically just say there is no other gods but God the Father. So even within the scriptures, we can look at specific scriptures to see that there is only one God, and then, of course, the Father is God. And we've talked about that in detail, and then we also went into detail in the last video that Jesus is God. And we gave all sorts of arguments for that, looking at different specific verses, the way that he uses what is called the I am phrase, or the way that the word Lord Yahweh is applied to him within the scripture as it's seen as a fulfillment of other scriptures in the Old Testament. So all of that proves that Jesus is God. And so now we have that there's only one God. The Father is God and Jesus is God. And now we're going to get into how we know that the Holy Spirit is God. 
And the Holy Spirit really isn't that contended by most people as being God. But what is debated is maybe whether or not the Holy Spirit is a separate being from God the Father, or whether the Holy Spirit really is a person to begin with. And that's where we're going to start. People might argue and say that ultimately the Holy Spirit is just an impersonal force. It's not really a being. It's not really a person, as we would say in the Trinity. And so, therefore, it's not really part of the Trinity. It can't really be part of the Trinity. It's just the Spirit of God. You would say it's the Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of God the Father. But it's not really a separate person. But that's not really true. Think of so many verses. Really, if you were to just read your Bible and every time that the Holy Spirit is mentioned and replace that and the way that the Holy Spirit is talked about as if it was some sort of impersonal force like electricity, then these passages don't really make a lot of sense. If it was an impersonal force, we should be able to say electricity did this or that, and it would make sense to the passage. But if we replace it with electricity and you're like, that just doesn't sound right, then maybe there's an implication there that it's not really just a force, it's an actual person. And what we're going to get into is some of the arguments and the reasons why we see that. Another thing before we get into that is some might say that the gender of Holy Spirit within Scripture is neutral. And therefore, if it's neutral, it must be just a thing. But this is just a misunderstanding of how language works in other languages. In English, we don't give items and things genders. We don't give people's names gender. We just give things that are actual animals in some sense or another that actually have a gender genders. But within other languages, whether it's German or Hebrew or other languages that do this, French, I think also, they assign a gender to things. But that doesn't mean then when they say that a mic is male, that all mics have a male gender or that a t this table is male, that that's a male table, really. It's just the gender that's assigned to it for other reasons in the way that language works. And in that same sort of way, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit and is given a neutral gender, that's not actually to associate an actual gender affiliation to that word. So there's a number of things that we ultimately see that the Holy Spirit does that just only make sense with a person, not just a force. And so we're going to look at these verses to understand that if someone's trying to make the case that the Holy Spirit yes, is divine, but is somehow just an impersonal force and not a person and therefore cannot be part of the Trinity. It just doesn't make sense scripturally. So the first thing that we see is that the Holy Spirit is grieved. It seems odd to grieve something that would just be an impersonal force. In Ephesians 4.30, it says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. We also see that the Holy Spirit has fellowship in first or in second Corinthians 13, 14, it says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Philippians 2, 1 says, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any fellowship with the spirit. So having fellowship with a force. Okay, maybe we're getting a little Star Wars like here, but I don't think we even would say that we have fellowship with electricity. We might be around electricity, but we don't fellowship with electricity. That's a weird idea. And so this is starting to clearly point out to us, it's 
personal. It's a person. It's not just a force. We also see that the Holy Spirit gives instructions. In Nehemiah 9.20, it says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. How is an impersonal force giving instruction? You might use an impersonal force to instruct someone. I'm going to use electricity to show you that electricity hurts or that I can use it to power something but I'm not going to use it as the thing that is instructing you. Electricity doesn't teach. We might use it as a tool to teach. And so that Nehemiah is saying that they were instructed by the Holy Spirit tells us that it's not just an impersonal force. We also see that the Holy Spirit speaks. Acts 8.29, Acts 11.12, and 13 verse 2 all talk about the Holy Spirit speaking. Again, forces don't speak. Electricity doesn't speak. It doesn't say anything. We might use it to do those things. It's a way in which you might speak to someone, but it is not something that speaks on its own. And so if something is doing something of its own will, something that we also see this Holy Spirit has, it has its own will, then it's not as if this is something that's just emitting from the Lord as some sort of force. It's something that is in itself independent. It has its own choices and its own decisions and things that it does on its own. And so therefore, it must be a person. We also see that the Holy Spirit witnesses. You don't say that electricity witnesses anything. We would say that people, persons, witness things. Acts 5.32, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey, which now we're hitting the second point. God gives us a person. You don't give electricity. A force isn't something you give. You could give something that has some of that, but you don't give that. We also see that the Holy Spirit prays and intercedes, and this is part of where we're seeing that it has a will. It has a mind of its own. It has something that it does on its own volition. It's not just following orders. It's not just doing it as nature designed that force to act. Romans 8, 26 through 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself, and now we see the Spirit is given these pronouns, him, he, himself, intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So again, we see these actions that the Holy Spirit is performing. It's very clearly a person. Holy Spirit also commands in John 14, 27, in him, we also see that Holy Spirit commands in Acts 10, 19 through 20, it says, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. What's interesting here is now we see further, not only is the Spirit commanding Peter to do something, he's also telling him about who is telling him to do this. It's not as if the Holy Spirit is just following exactly what God told him to do, God the Father, as if he has no choice in that, like we would expect a force to do, in which the force of gravity does what we want when we drop a pen. It's as if the Spirit has its own will, 
to say, I am sending you. I have sent these people to you, and I am telling you to go and do these things. We also see in John 14, 26, that the Holy Spirit is a teacher. It says he will teach you all of the things that you need to know. Again, a force isn't a teacher. The Holy Spirit is called a person or a helper by Jesus in John 16, 13 through 14. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you unto all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Now, in here, people might make the point that, well, it seems like then the Holy Spirit has a lesser role than Jesus. He's taking a lesser role. That's true. But that doesn't mean he has a lower nature. In the same sense, we might look at a student to a teacher. Do those have equal value? The student and the teacher, by nature, have equal value. But their role within a school is different. And so, They have a different role. One is higher than the other, but their nature makes them equal. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit takes a lower position within the Trinity in role, but not in nature. And so they're equal in nature. They're equally God. And the same thing is happening with Jesus and God the Father. Jesus does take a role that is lower than God the Father, but that's not speaking to his nature. It's speaking to his role. And so this, just because we see This hierarchy, to some extent, does not imply what is called subordination. We also see in John 15, 26, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So again, we see these pronouns, he will testify, not it will testify, the force will testify, the electricity will testify. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. And that's not what the wording of scripture has. So therefore, we have to conclude that the Holy Spirit is in fact a person, even though that might be hard for us to understand. We don't understand how a person can be unembodied in some sense, just as the Father is unembodied, but also within us. But we see that the scripture is making it clear. The Holy Spirit is a person. So now that we put to the side the idea that the Holy Spirit is just a force, can we really say that he's God? And here's a bunch of arguments that we can make to show that the Holy Spirit is in fact God. One, we see that the Holy Spirit takes part in things that only God should take part in. The Holy Spirit is part of creation, Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And as we talked about in the previous video, we know that God alone created the heavens and the earth. He spread out the heavens by himself. That's what scripture tells us. So if God, so if the Holy Spirit was involved in creation and only God was involved in creation, then of course the Holy Spirit must be God. Psalm 104 verse 30, when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So through the Holy Spirit, things are created. The Holy Spirit is often seen as speaking for someone or in place of someone is what is suggested. When scripture talks about when we will be persecuted, when Jesus is warning that they will be persecuted, he warns them and tells them, hey, don't worry about what you're going to say. God will give you insight. 
in what needs to be said. And when we examine the different passages, even just within the synoptic gospels of this passage of Jesus saying, you will be equipped in what to say, we see that the Holy Spirit is seen as equal to Jesus and God the Father as far as his words. Mark 13, 11 says, Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you will say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's going to come and give you words when you're arrested and persecuted of what to say in reply. But then when we read in Matthew 10, 19, of the same passage going on, when you they deliver you over, what, Ma- what Matthew then says is that when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who is speaking through you. So the spirit of your father, that means my dad, Stan Myers? No. Of course that's not what he's implying. He's saying your physical, not your physical father, but your spiritual father. Your spiritual father being God. And so Matthew says that it's God that's going to give you insight. And we see that Mark is saying that it's the Holy Spirit that's going to give you insight. And then Luke in 21 verses 14 to 15 says, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to understand or contradict. So now Jesus in Luke is saying, I'm the one that's going to give you the words. So if it's the Holy Spirit, it's God the Father, and it's Jesus who are all giving you words, and it's God who's giving you the words, then the only reasonable explanation to that is that is the Trinity. All of them are going to give you words, and they are all God. And so therefore, the Trinity works. The Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. Jesus and the Father are going to be with us, is what Jesus promises. But when we look at the scriptures of how that comes to fulfillment, Jesus is going away. He goes up into heaven after he's resurrected. So how is he going to be with us? Well, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so therefore, he is going to be with us. Jesus and God the Father are going to be with us through the Holy Spirit because he is part of that trinity. We also look at the prophet's words. When we look at 2 Peter 1.21, it says, For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, through, through though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that gave the prophets the words that they should speak that became the scriptures that we have now. But then in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So if the words that were written down in scripture by the prophets is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the scriptures themselves that are those words are inspired by God, what is the implication? The Holy Spirit is God. To be born again, we must be born in the Spirit. John 3, 5 says, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Holy Spirit. So if in order for you and I to be born again, we must be born of the Spirit, it seems like he has a very important role because it doesn't say that I must be born of God. It doesn't say that I must be born of Jesus or God the Father. It says I must be born of the Spirit. And the implication, of course, is then, well, then, 
that sort of requirement should be something that God alone should be able to fulfill. Well, then, that's telling us that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. Titus 3.5, along those lines, says, He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Finally, we see within the narrative within Scripture that lying against the Holy Spirit is considered lying against God. In Acts three or in Acts five, verses three to four, then Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your hearts that you lied to the Holy Spirit? So who are they lying to? They're lying to the Holy Spirit. And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Who were they lying to? They were lying to the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, you lied to God. That's telling us that the Holy Spirit is God. Also, we see in Matthew 12, 31 through 32, the unpardonable sin. And so I tell you, every kind of sin, slander, can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Are we saying that you can blaspheme against God, but not against the Holy Spirit? Of course not. Nothing can take a rank above God. And so if we're saying that you can blaspheme against anything, but you can't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that's clearly implying that the Holy Spirit is God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now we can dive into the theology of what that means, grieving the Holy Spirit or blaspheming the Holy Spirit and God, but that's not what we're focused on today, so we're going to keep moving forward. Another thing that we see about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is seen as omnipresent a characteristic that God alone has. Any of those omni-qualities of being omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, those things would be characteristics and qualities that only God possesses. Yet we see the Holy Spirit in Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from the Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Implying that there is no place. God, the Spirit, is everywhere. He is omnipresent. In 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11, it says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So if the Spirit knows all things, even the knowledge and the depth and everything that God knows, then that, that implies that the Spirit itself is omniscient. And so that concludes with us to show the Spirit must be God. So finally, we come to our last point. We've established that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all each individually God. We've established that there is only one God. And now the simple question is, are they not each other? Because if they are not each other, the only answer then is that the Trinity must in fact be true. And this is one that not many people contend, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but we can still give some arguments. Some people might say that the Holy Spirit is the same as the Son. But we see that Jesus says the Father will send the Holy Spirit. All of this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So if Jesus is saying they will send the Holy Spirit, the Father will send the Holy Spirit in my name, then clearly it doesn't make sense to send himself in his own name. There's got to be a difference between the two of them. We also see, so that was John 14, 25 through 26. We also see in 15, 26 through 27, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. John 14, 16 through 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The word cannot accept him. The world cannot accept him because it nevertheless sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be with you. So Jesus and the Holy Spirit are clearly not each other. We also see that Jesus cannot be equal or the same as he is equal, but he is not the same as the father because he prays to the father and God sends his son, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Why would he be sending himself down? That doesn't make sense. The Holy Spirit is also not the Father. Because the Father, as we said earlier from the John passage, is the one sending the Holy Spirit. So they're clearly not each other. And then also we see in the baptism at Mark 1, 10 through 11 and the other passages that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all appear at the baptism. So they are clearly not each other. So, all of that said, what we've established is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each individually God. They are not each other, and there's only one God. And if all of that is true, the only logical conclusion is that the Trinity is true. Hey guys, thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed the content. If you did, please give it a like and a subscribe. Also think about supporting this ministry financially. Your support allows me to create more content in the future that's hopefully more of a resource to others and to yourself. If you wanna do that, there's a link in the description that will take you to my Ratio Christie page and you can set up a donation there. Thanks a lot.